Atento. Ruby developers, the Rocky Mountain Ruby Conference returns to Boulder, Colorado on October 5th and 6th. Join us for two days of insightful talks from experienced Ruby developers and plenty of opportunities to connect with your Ruby community. But that's not all. Nestled on the edge of the breathtaking Rocky Mountains, Boulder is a haven for outdoor lovers of all stripes. Take a break from coding, come learn and enjoy at the conference, and explore the charm of downtown Boulder. Eclectic shops, first-class restaurants and bars, and incredible street art everywhere. Immerse yourself in the vibrant culture and the many microbrew hubs that Boulder has to offer. Grab your tickets now at RockyMountainRuby.dev and be a part of the 2023 Rocky Mountain Ruby Conference. That's RockyMTNRuby.dev, October 5th and 6th in Boulder. See you there. And welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Joelle Kenville. And I'm Stephanie Mint, and together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So Stephanie, what's new in your world? So I have a new piece of content that I'm consuming lately that is Kent Beck's Substack, (laughs) Kent Beck of Agile Manifesto and Extreme Programming Notoriety. I have been really enjoying this trend of independent content creation in the newsletter format lately. And I subscribe to a lot of newsletters for things outside of work as well. I've been using a RSS feed to like keep track of all of the dispatches I'm following in that way so that it also kind of keeps it out of my inbox. And it's purely just for when I'm in a internet reading kind of mood. But I subscribed to Kent's Substack. Most of his content is behind a subscription. And I've been really enjoying it because he treats it as a place for a lot of his working thoughts, kind of a space that he uses to explore topics that could be whole books, but he is still in the phase of kind of like thinking them through and like integrating, you know, different things he's learning and acknowledging that like, yeah, like not all of these ideas are fully fleshed, but they are still worth publishing for people who might be interested in kind of his thought process or where his head is at. And I think that is really cool. Uh, and very different from just like other types of content I consume where there has been like a lot of especially more traditional media where there has been like more editing involved and a lot of time and effort to reach a final product. And I'm curious about this, like I mentioned, trend towards a little less polished and and people just publishing things as they're working through them and acknowledging that like that the way they're thinking about things can change over time. It sounds like this is kind of halfway between, uh, you know, book, which is gone through a lot of editing and, you know, a tweet thread, which is pure stream of consciousness. Yeah, that's a really great insight, actually. Um, And I think that might be my sweet spot in terms of things I enjoy consuming or reading because I like that room for change and that there is uh, a bit of a, you know, community aspect to Substack where you can comment on posts, but at least in my experience has seemed like relatively healthy because it is 
you know, you're kind of with a community of people who are at least invested or willing to pay for the content. So there is some amount of good faith involved. The, his newsletter title itself, it's called Tidy First Question Mark. And so that almost implies that it's like something he's still exploring or experimenting with, which I think is really cool. It's not like a, I have discovered like the perfect way to do things. And, you know, you must always tidy first before you do your software development. He's, he's kind of in the position of this is what I think works. And this, this is my space for continuing to refine this idea. I'm curious, are there any sort of articles that you've read or just thoughts in general that you've seen from Kent that are particularly impactful or memorable to you? Yeah, one I read today during my investment time is called Accountability in Software Development. And it was a very interesting take on the idea of accountability, not necessarily like when it's forced by others or, or external forces, um, like a manager or you know your organization, but when it comes from yourself. And he describes it as a way to feel comfortable and confident in the work that he's doing and also building trust in himself and and in his work, but also in his teams by being transparent and literally accounting for the things that he's doing and sharing them, communicating them publicly, that almost ends up diminishing any kind of like distrust or shame or any of the those weird kind of squishy things that can happen when you hide those things or like hide what you're doing. It becomes a way to foster the like good parts of, of working with other people, but not in a necessarily like resentful way or in a hierarchical way. It, I was really interested in the idea of accountability ultimately like for yourself. And then that ends up just propagating to the team. That's a really interesting topic because I think it sort of sits at the intersection of the personal and the technical. Yeah, absolutely. He mentions more technical strategies or tasks that kind of do the same thing. You know, he mentions test-driven development as well as like a way of holding yourself accountable to writing software that, you know, doesn't have bugs in it. So I think that it can be applied to, you know, exactly both of those like interpersonal stuff and also technical aspects too. Anyway, that's what's new in my world. Joelle, what about you? So this year I've been putting a lot of thought into a variety of tools and processes. And I think I've come to the realization that they all really fall under one kind of umbrella term. Uh, that would be analysis. It's a common step in some definitions of the traditional uh, software development lifecycle. And it's where you try to, after you've kind of gathered the requirements, try to break them down and understand what exactly that means from a technical perspective, what needs to happen. And so a lot of the things that have been really fascinating to me this year have been different techniques that I can use to become better at that sort of phase. Wow, that's very powerful, I think. And honestly, the first thing that comes to mind is how do you make time for it? I think we all do it to a certain extent. Uh, you know, you pick up a ticket and there is a prose description of some work to be done. Hopefully not telling you directly, like, just go make a change to this class, but here's a business problem to be solved. And then you have to sort of figure out how to break it down. So this can be as simple as, oh, 
what objects, what classes do I need to introduce for this change? But it might be more subtle in terms of thinking, okay, well, what are the edge cases I need to think about? Where are things that could fail and how am I going to handle failure? So there's a variety of techniques that you can use to get better at all of these. You can use them kind of at the micro level uh, when thinking about just a ticket. You can use them when working on a larger epic, a larger initiative, a whole project, because I think analysis fits into kind of all of these levels. And so I think those are the techniques that have been most exciting to me this year and that have really connected. That is very exciting. It's triggering a lot of thoughts for me about how I incorporate analysis into my work and how that has actually evolved, where I think before, earlier in my career, I assumed that the analysis had been done by someone else who knew better than me or who knew more than me. And that by the time that it, you know, a piece of work kind of landed in my lap, I was like, okay, well, I just want to know what to do, right? Like I want someone else to tell me what to do. But now I think I have taken it upon myself to do more of that and like have realized that it's part of my role. And sometimes it will now be kind of a flag or like a signal to me when that hasn't been done. And I can tell when I receive a ticket and it's like maybe missing the business problem, right? Or doesn't have enough information and determining whether that is information that I need to go and find out, or if there's someone else who I can work together with to do that analysis with, or having a better understanding of like what is within my realm of analysis to do and what I need to encourage other people to do analysis for before it's the work is ready for me. I think there is an interesting distinction between more traditional requirements gathering and analysis, where traditional requirements gathering, this is getting all that business problem information from product people, from customers, things like that. The analysis step is often a little bit more about breaking down a business problem into like, what are the technical ramifications of that? But there can be a little bit of synergy there where sometimes once you start exploring the technical side of it, Uh, It might bring up a lot of edge cases that have impacts on the product side, on the business side. And then you have to go back to the business people and say, hey, uh, we only talked about sort of the happy path. What happens if payment is declined? What do we want to do there? Uh, And now we're back in sort of that requirements gathering phase a little bit more rather than purely analysis. But it can come out of an analysis phase where you've done maybe some state machine diagramming to try to better understand how things flow from one phase to another. Uh, or maybe you were building out a truth table for uh, some complex logic and realized, wait a minute, there's an edge case I didn't handle. It's not a strictly linear process. The two kind of feed into each other and honestly into the implementation side as well. Yeah, I'm with you there. I'm thinking about a piece of work that I've been working on where we were thinking of doing a a database migration and adding some new columns to a table. But the more I dug into it, the more I realized that that was the first idea or the immediate idea that came from a need that I had limited information about. And what was nice was I was able to sit on it for a little bit, get some input from others and... I realized that there were all of these things that I couldn't answer yet. Someone I think literally asked in a a code review, if you've already done this analysis uh, between knowing that these columns will be the kind of extent of what you need versus, you know, will the data end up needing more columns and 
should the the data model be a little more flexible to that potential change? And they said, if you already had already done this analysis, then like otherwise it looks good to me. Uh, and I was like, oh, I didn't. <laughs> and that encouraged me to go back to some cross-functional members of the team and ask more questions. And that has taken more time. That was another challenge that I had to encounter was saying like, yeah, we started this, we made some progress, but actually we need to revisit a few things, like a few parts of the premise before continuing on. Are there any techniques or approaches that you particularly enjoy when it comes to doing analysis or that maybe are go-tos for you? Reminding myself to revisit my assumptions, (laughs) or at least even starting by being really clear about what I'm assuming, right? Because I think that has to happen first before you can even revisit them is having an awareness of what assumptions you're making. And I actually think this is where collaboration has been really helpful, where I've been working on this task with another developer on my team. And when we've been talking about it, I found myself saying, oh, I'm assuming this, right? Or like, I'm assuming that the stakeholder knows what they need. (laughs) Uh, And that's why we're going to do it this way, where we were kind of given the pieces of data that we should be persisting. And the more that we had that conversation, the more I realized, like, actually, like, I'm not convinced that they have that full picture of like what they need in the future. And because we're making this decision now, like we are turning, you know, literally from like the abstract into like a concrete change in the database. Now seems like now that we're faced with that decision, it seemed like a a good time to revisit the assumption that I was making. And that has proved helpful in making ultimately like a more informed decision about like which way to go technically. But I personally have found a lot of value in verbally processing it with someone else. It's a lot harder for me to identify them, I think, when I'm in my own head. That's really interesting that you keyed in on the idea of assumptions. I typically think of assumptions being so important, mostly in debugging rather than analysis. In fact, I wrote a whole blog post about why listing your assumptions is so important as part of your debugging process. Now, like my mind is spinning a little bit and like, oh, I wonder if I could use some of those like debugging techniques as part of more of my analysis step. And could that make me better? So I think you, you've put me on a whole like thought track of like, oh, how many of these debugging techniques can I use to make my analysis better? So that's really cool. Yeah, and vice versa. So a few minutes ago, I asked you how you make time for that analysis because I was thinking that, you know, in my day-to-day work, I am juggling so many things. I often find myself running out of time and not able to do all of it. And that I think leads us really well into our topic for this episode, which is productivity tricks and ways that we make the most use out of our limited time. I think I may have a maybe a bit of a controversial uh, opinion on productivity tricks. I feel like a lot of productivity tricks don't actually make me that much faster. Like maybe I save a couple of minutes a day, maybe five or ten a day with productivity tricks and. Sure, that adds up over the course of a year, but there are other things I could do in terms of like maybe better habits, better managing of my schedule that probably have a much more significant impact. Where I think they are incredibly valuable though is not directly making me better with my time management, but managing my focus. 
allowing me to kind of keep in the in the flow and get things done without getting sidetracked or just kind of giving me the things that I need in the moment that I need them so that I'm not getting onto a subtask that I don't really need to be doing. Yeah, I really like that reframing of what helps you focus because as I was brainstorming ways that I stay on track for my work, I think I ended up discovering a similar theme where it wasn't so much like little snippets and tools uh, for me, as opposed to how I structure all of the noise, I guess, in, in my day-to-day work and being able to see what it is that I need to care about the most right now. I think one of the things that I've tried to do for myself is to make it easy to have access to the information and the tools that I need. Probably one of the most uh, useful bits of that is a combination of the documentation viewer dash and the, not sure what it would be called, launcher productivity manager tool for Mac, Alfred, with the command space, it brings up this bar I can type into, and then you can trigger all sorts of things from there. And so I can type the name of a language or some kind of keyword that I have set up and the name of a method and then all of a sudden, uh, it'll show me everything, like, you know, top five results, and I can hit enter, and it will bring up the documentation for that. So if I want to say, oh, yeah, what is the, the order of the arguments for uh, enumerables inject method, which I constantly forget, you know, it's a few keyboard shortcuts, you know, command space, Ruby, enumerable, inject, it's fuzzy findings. So I probably don't even need to type all of that. Hit enter, and I have the documentation right in front of me. So that makes it so that I can get access to that with very little amount of context shifting. Yeah. I like what you said about how the tools are really helping you like narrow down like the views of like what is most important for you in that moment, and it's doing a little bit of that work for you. I think the couple of tools uh, and apps that I actually did want to share are kind of similar. One macOS app I really like is called Rectangle for Windows management, which is really crucial for me because I don't enjoy like swiping and tabbing between applications. I would much prefer just seeing usually just two things. I try to keep my screen limited to two different windows at once because once it gets more than that I'm already just like overwhelmed (laughs) and as I am trying to focus a little bit more on just having like one thing be the focus of my attention at a time rectangle has been really nice and just really quickly being able to do my windows resizing so I usually have like either things as split between my screen half and half. Like right now I have your face on my screen as we record this podcast and then my notes editing software for taking notes about what we talk about during my development workflow. It's usually, you know, just my editor and my terminal. And then maybe my browser ends up being like the thing that I tab into, but I'm able to just like set that all up. And as I need those windows to change, depending on what my focus has been shifted to, to kind of make more space for whatever I'm reading or or looking at or processing visually, the keyboard shortcuts that rectangle that I have now, you know, ingrained into my finger (laughs) has been really helpful. Uh, So I'm not fussing with just like too many things open. I've yet to like dive into a window manager. I'm still in the clunky world of command tabbing, uh, but maybe I should give that a try. 
for me, it has helped even just like identify the things that I need to give more space to on my screen and aggressively like cut everything else. <laughs> so that's a really great macOS app. And then the other one is actually kind of a similar vein. It's called Meter, M-E-E-T-E-R. And it has been really helpful for managing my meetings, especially when my video call meetings, where the video call software that's being used for the meeting may be variable. Uh, And also when I I have multiple email addresses that meetings are being sent to, um, you're able to sign into all of your calendar accounts. And it provides a really nice view of all of your meetings it has a really like minimal, I guess, design in, in your toolbar where it shows you how many minutes until your next meeting. And from that toolbar button, you can click to go to the video conferencing software directly for whatever meeting is up next. And you don't have to, you know, scramble to open Google Meet or Zoom or, or WebEx or whatever it is. And that's been nice, again, just kind of like cutting down on the amount of stuff that I need to remember and shift through to get to my destination. I think I'm hearing kind of two themes emerge out of some of the things that we've shared. And I'd like to maybe explore them a little bit. One is the power of keyboard shortcuts. And I think that's maybe what a lot of us think of when we think of productivity apps, at least developers, right? We love keyboard shortcuts. And then secondly, I think I'm hearing automation, right? So you don't have to go through and like find that email or calendar link to find the Zoom link or whatever, it just shows up in your toolbar. So maybe we can dig into a little bit of the idea of keyboard shortcuts. Are you uh, a person who like customizes a lot of keyboard shortcuts? And is that a part of your kind of productivity setup? Well, a while ago, we had talked about not keyboard shortcuts in the context of productivity, but I think I would mention that I was trying to use my mouse less uh, because I was getting a little bit of wrist pain. And I think that actually has rolled into a little bit of, you know, just like more efficient navigation on my computer. I think my keyboard shortcut usage is mostly around Windows management, like I mentioned. Uh, I do feel like I have like a medium amount of efficiency in my editor. Uh, Sometimes when I'm pairing with other people who use Vim, I'm like, shook by how fast they're moving. And I have figured out what works for me in VS Code, and I don't think I need to get any faster. You know, I've I've just accepted that. (laughs) In fact, it's almost like the amount of speed and friction that I have in my experience is actually a little more beneficial for the speed that my mind works. (laughs) It it kind of helps me slow down when I need to, uh, to think about what I'm doing, as opposed to just like being able to like, do anything at my fingertips and kind of my brain is just not able to think that fast. And then navigating Slack, which is where I also spend a lot of my time on my computer. Now using Slack with my keyboard shortcuts has been really helpful because again, I'm not like mindlessly browsing or clicking around. Uh, I'm just looking at my unread messages. One keyboard shortcut I really like with Slack is command K, which is the jump to feature. And so I'm using that to go to a specific channel that I know I'm looking for, or my own personal DMs where I keep a lot of notes as well. And honestly, I think that's like the extent of my keyboard shortcut usage. I'm curious what your setup is in regards to that, though. I think I'm similar to you in that I have not kind of maxed out the productivity around keyboard shortcuts. 
Uh, you'd mentioned the jump to in Slack. Several pieces of software have uh, something kind of like that. It might be a, some sort of omnibar or a command palette or something like that, where you really just need to know command K or command P, control P or common ones. Then you can sort of like type a few characters to just describe the thing you want to do uh, or a search you want to make or something like that. Just knowing that one keyboard shortcut for your one piece of software gets you, I don't know, 80% of the productivity that you want. It's kind of amazing. I love the idea of an Omnibar. Yeah, I hadn't heard of Omnibar as a phrase before, but that feels very accurate. Uh, I like that a lot too, where it's like, oftentimes I don't do whatever particular thing enough necessarily for it to justify a keyboard shortcut for me, at least. I'm still able to be fast enough to get to, like I said, the final destination or the action that I want to take with a more universal shortcut like that. In my editors, I use Vim and I got used to Vim's keyboard-based navigation. And that is something that I deeply appreciate. Maybe not so much for speed, but being able to almost kind of feel one with the machine and the cursor moves around and I don't have to like think about moving it. It's really a magical sort of feeling. Uh, and it's become so much muscle memory now that I can just sort of, the cursor jumps around, things change out, and I'm not like constantly thinking about it to the point where now, if I'm in any other editor, I really want to get those shortcuts. Or I guess, maybe not shortcuts, but uh, Vim-style navigation, keyboard-based navigation. Yeah, it sounds like it's not so much the time savings, but the power that you have or the control that you have over your tools. Yes, and I think, again, the idea of focus. Navigation has stopped becoming a thing where I have to actively think about it. And I, I feel like I really do just sort of think my fingers are on the keyboard. I'm not having to like do a physical motion where I switch my hands. Like I'm typing and I'm like, I'm writing code and I have to switch my hand away to a mouse to shift around or like move my hand off the home row to like find the arrow keys and like move around. I just kind of think and the cursor jumps up. It's great. Uh, maybe I'd be the same if I'd put a lot of time into uh, getting really good at uh, you know, maybe arrow-based navigation. I, I still think the mouse, you have to move your hand off. That's It, it breaks just in the tiniest little way the flow. So for me, I, I really appreciate being fully keyboard-based when I'm writing code. Right. Being one with the keyboard. As you were talking about that, I very viscerally felt, you know, when you encounter a new piece of technology and you're trying to navigate it for the first time and you're like, wow, that takes so much mental overhead that it's you know, just completely disruptive to the goal that you're trying to achieve with the software itself. Yeah, it is a steep learning curve. So we've talked about custom keyboard shortcuts in the editor, but it's common for people to augment their editor with plugins, maybe even some kind of like snippet manager to maybe expand snippets or to paste common pieces in. Is that something that you've done in your editor setup? I think you said you use uh, VS Code as your sort of daily editor. Yeah, that's right. I actually think I almost forgot about some of my little bits of automation because they are just so svelte for me <laughs> that I don't have to think about them. But you prompting me just now reminded me that there are a few that I'd like to shout out. Uh, Snippets-wise... I mostly use them for when I'm writing tests and just having the it blocks or the context blocks expand out for me so I don't have to do any of that typing of the setup there. And since I do use a terminal outside of my editor, 
I know that some people really like kind of having that integrated and being able to run tests even faster without having to switch to a different application, but I like having them separate. There is a really great plugin called GoToSpec where you can be in any you know application code file and it will pull up the spec file for you. I've been really enjoying that. And that is what helps my test writing be a little more automated, even though I'm having it in separate applications. That is really useful. So as a Vim user, I also have a plugin that does something similar where I can switch to the what's considered the alternate for a particular file, which is typically the spec. Or if I'm in the spec, it'll switch to the source file that this the spec is testing. And then I do have one really silly one, which is that I got so sick and tired of not remembering how to, you know, type the symbols for string interpolation in Ruby, that that has also become a snippet where the hash key and the little brackets get populated for me. I love it. So Stephanie, I'd like to go back to something you were talking about earlier in the show. When you were sharing about what was new in your world, and you mentioned that you subscribed to the Substack and that you subscribed to actually a lot of newsletters, and you said something that really caught my attention. You were saying that you don't want these all cluttering up your email inbox. Instead, uh, you send all of these to an RSS reader application. What kind of application do you do you like to use? I use Feedbin for this. And I actually think that this was recommended by Chris Toomey back uh, in the day on a previous Bike Shed episode before you and I hosted the show. But that has been really awesome. It has a just like randomly generated email address you can use when you sign up for newsletters. Um, You use that instead. And I really like having that distinction because I honestly treat my email inbox as a bit of a to-do list where I am archiving or deleting a lot of stuff. And then the things that remain in my inbox are things that I need to either respond to or do or or get back to in some way. And then, uh, yeah, when I've completed it, then that's when I archive or delete. But now that we do have all this great content back in email form, I needed a separate space for that where I similarly kind of treat it as like a to read list. And yeah, like I look at my unreads in the the newsletter RSS reader that I'm using and go through that when I'm in a blog reading kind of mood. I really like that separation uh, because I'm kind of like you. I treat my inbox as a to-do list and it's hard to have uh, newsletters come in and like, I'm not ready to read them but I don't want them in my to-do or like they'll just kind of sit there and get mixed in and maybe like filter down to the bottom. So having that explicit separation, say, hey, here's the place I go to where when I am in a reading mood, then I can read things. I think there's also, I've sort of trained myself to only check my email during certain times. So for example, I will not check my work email outside of working hours. But if I'm on the subway going somewhere and I've got some time where I can do some reading, it would probably be a good thing to be going through some kind of newsletter or something like that. So I either have to remember to go back to it or what I tend to do is just scroll Twitter and hope that someone has shared that link and that I read it there, uh, which is not a particularly effective way of doing things. So I might try the RSS feed reader tool. Uh, what was it called? Feedbin. Feedbin. All right. I might try to get into that. 
Yeah, I look forward to hearing uh, if that ends up working for you because I agree. Having the two separate spaces has been really helpful because I don't want to get distracted by my email slash to-do list inbox if I'm just wanting to do a bit of reading, enjoy some content. So one more theme around productivity that I don't think we've quite mentioned yet, but maybe we've talked a little bit around is the idea that it's, at least for me, it's a product of time and energy. So even if you have all the time in the world, you know, you can just stare into space or like stare at a line of code and not get anything done. I know the feeling. Right? I am kind of curious how or if you have any techniques for managing that aspect when your focus is low, like how can you kind of get that back so that you can get back to doing your tasks or getting what you need to do done? If I have the time, taking a break is a really powerful thing, particularly taking a break and doing something physical. So if I can go outside and take a walk around the block, that's really helpful. If I need a shorter thing that can be done in you know, like five minutes or something, I have a pull-up bar set up in my place. I'll you know, just go up and do a few sets there and get a little bit of the heart rate slightly up, get a little bit of blood pumping, and that sometimes can help uh, reset a little bit. Nice. Yes, I'm all for doing something else. <laughs> Even when you know that this is a priority or is kind of urgent or or whatever, but you just can't get yourself to do it. I found that asking myself the question, what would make this task easier for me right now has been helpful during those moments. And for me, that might be grabbing a friend. Like maybe I just am blocked because I'm really just unmotivated, but having someone along can kind of inject some of that energy for me. And then there's a really great blog post by a woman named Mandy Brown. It's called Energy Makes Time. And she talks about how doing the things that fill our cup actually, you know, even though it seems like how could we possibly have time to be creative or like you said, maybe do something physical, um, those seem like, like lower on the priority list. But when you kind of get to the point where you just can't, you just feel so overwhelmed and can't do anything else, and you just go do those things that you know feel good for you, you kind of come back with a renewed perspective on your to-do list and you can see like what things actually aren't that critical and be can be taken off. Uh, or you just find that you have the capacity or the energy to get the things that you are really dreading out of the way. So that has been really helpful when I just am feeling blocked instead of like feeling bad about how unproductive I'm being. I take that as a sign of an opportunity to do something else that might set me up for success later. Yeah, I think oftentimes it's easy to think of productivity in terms of like, how can I maybe eliminate some tasks that are not uh, high value through clever automation or keyboard shortcuts or things like that. But oftentimes it can be more about just sort of managing your focus, managing your energy. And by doing that, you might have a much higher impact on both how productive you feel, because that's an important thing as well in terms of motivation, and you know how productive you actually are at getting things done. Right. At least for me, 
that like not all tedium is bad and needs to be automated away but like my ability to like handle it in the moment whereas yeah sometimes maybe i've just ran the same few lines uh, that should be just a script (laughs) that should just be a you know one command enough times that i'm like oh like i can't even do this anymore because of just like other things going on but other times like it's really not a big deal for me to just you know run a few extra commands and like that is perfectly fine i love writing a good vim macro yes it's important to think beyond just the the fun tools and the the code that we can write uh kind of think a little bit more at that that energy and that mental level that said there are a ton of great tools out there we've name dropped a bunch of them in this episode for our listeners who are wondering uh who weren't like necessarily taking notes uh, we've linked all of them in the show notes uh, at bikeshed.fm. Uh, you can find them there. On that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show has been produced and edited by Mandy Moore. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. It really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at underscore bikeshed or you can reach me at Joel Ken on Twitter. Or reach both of us at hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye! Bye. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot, your expert strategy, design, development, and product management partner. We bring digital products from idea to success and teach you how because we care. Learn more at thoughtbot.com.